If you have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to turn to the first epistle of John. John's first letter is near the back of your Bibles. It is one of three letters of John, part of the what are the so-called Catholic or universal epistles, not written to a specific church, but written to the churches in general. Easy to find. You can start the book of Revelation and just go to the left through Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and find 1 John. And our text this evening is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 John chapter 2. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possession, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God. Lord, teach us from your word. We are so prone to love the things of the world. We're so prone to get wrapped up in things that are passing away. We ask, O Lord, that even tonight you would remind us of things that are eternal. You would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is He that we would love. It is He that we would serve. This we ask in the name above all names. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our text this evening is in the second chapter of 1 John. It is a memorable and it is actually an often quoted passage of Scripture that it has much to teach us. But it comes to us in a context. And we don't want to ever take any Scripture, especially those that are familiar, out of its context. After all, that is how we misunderstand God's Word. That was Satan's tactic with our Lord in the temptation, to take isolated portions of the Scripture out of context so that they might say something that they do not. And while there are many, many sermons that could be given from this text, I want us to think about three things that are of particular note for our context this evening. First, we have to understand that John has a purpose for this chapter. That actually God has a purpose for this chapter for us. 
And he begins here by writing to three groups of people. To children, to fathers, and to young men. And I think what we need to understand is that John is setting us up to understand the truth of verses 15 through 17 in the context of it being a truth that every single one of us needs. Those who are new in the faith, like children, those who are long steeped in following God and following His Word, like the fathers, and those even who think they're in a time of strength, like the young men. You see, oftentimes as Christians, we are prone to go on autopilot when something comes up, when a doctrine comes up that is well known. You know, because it's been a long time that we learned about justification by faith, when we hear that doctrine come up, we assume we know all about it. And we don't seize it with the same attention that we might other things. When we've known for years, for example, that the Lord's Supper is only for believers... Our minds go elsewhere during the fencing of the table. And we have to remember that God writes these words for us, no matter where we are on our journey. The second thing that we need to put in context for this text is that this chapter is and has been telling us that love is essential for the Christian life. In fact, love is essential to the very being of the Christian Love is the old commandment that is made new, we saw last week. Love is the test of truth. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. John writes just a few verses earlier. Love is the test of true fellowship. For those who fail to love cannot abide in covenant with those who do. This is why John can write later in verse 19 that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The third thing we need to set in context for this is that the most important thing for us to remember as we look at our text tonight is that love, true love, is not merely a preference or a feeling. Love is a commitment that is backed up by action. Keep in mind that John says later in this letter that we are to love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now notice how action and truth are equated. We often think of truth as merely an intellectual exercise, and Maybe that's true in math or in history. But it is not true in the Christian life. For love to be true, it must be acted out. It must be a commitment. And we see this same truth over and over again. We saw it in verses 4 and 5. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And later again in verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And then again in verses 28 and 29, And now, little children, abide in Him, and when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. 
If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. You see, the central theme of what John is expounding in this whole chapter, in fact, in the entirety of this letter, is that true love requires a life commitment to the object of that love. There can be no other kind of love. You see, when we speak of another kind of love, like loving french fries, or loving the color blue, really we're not speaking of a deep-seated commitment that is a part of action. It's merely an expression of a momentary preference that could change at any time. You see, we must love in such a manner like we do with our covenanted spouses and children. This is why John can make such a bold statement like this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a stark statement that causes us pause, doesn't it? But John is merely following his Lord. In the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 6, that no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, keep these thoughts in mind as we begin to explore our text. True love is covenantal. It is what we give our lives to. Now, that can be an encouraging thing, or that can be a frightening thing, depending upon what the object of our love is. With that in mind then, let's turn directly to our text, focusing on verses 15 through 17. Lord willing, tonight I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, we'll see that there is a warning to us as Christians to avoid giving our lives to the world and the things of the world. Second, there is an exhortation upon us to rely on Jesus and His means of grace in order that we might love the Father. And then third, we'll look briefly at some practical applications of these truths. Let's begin then by looking at seeing God's mercy in warning us to avoid cultivating love for the world. Now, do you wonder why John is so bold in warning the child of God not to love the world? Doesn't this seem a bit drastic? To say that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him? Now, we can look at this statement in one of two ways. We could see it as an unnecessary exaggeration for effect. Or we can see it as a gracious intervention into our lives by God. I believe that it's the latter. In this way, John's warning is a lot like the Ten Commandments. At first glance... They seem to be merely overly strict. But at closer inspection, we see that God is actually protecting us. That He is showing mercy to us. And that it becomes a matter of the heart. You shall not commit adultery becomes love your wife. You shall not bear false witness becomes you must tell the truth. And so on. And here, God through John is warning us to avoid cultivating love For the world. For the word of God says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, he will reap of the flesh, the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So what a merciful thing God is doing to us through John in pointing us away from that that will harm us, that will take us down the wrong road. What a tremendous mercy. Although Christ's work is completely finished, the application of His work to us is not. He does not stop at bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness and into His marvelous light. He is continually warning us to flee from that which is contrary to Christ and to run toward Christ. This is the mercy and grace of our Lord. You see, God does not change. And what He says here, He has said before. This theme of not loving the world and being emboldened to go after the world is one of the main themes in the Scripture. Actually, From the very first day that the Israelites dwelt in the land of Canaan, God warned them against setting their hearts upon the world and its things. Think about that. Israel was to be a separate people, wholly devoted to the Lord. They were to be covenanted with God. He was to be to them a God, and they were to be to Him a people. They were not to be covenanted with the world. And this worked itself out in several ways. They were not to have the gods that the Canaanites had. They were not to marry with the Canaanites. They were not even to eat the foods that the Canaanites ate. They were to be visibly separate from the world. Now why is this? We certainly don't have any prohibitions on foods in the same way that the Israelites did in the Old Testament. I'm not going to stop any of you from going home and peeling some shrimp or eating some shellfish or having a cheeseburger. But you see, there is a principle that we see in the Old Testament. There is a type, if you will, that is put before us that is just as applicable for we are today. There was a time in which God taught His people by means of shadows, foreshadowing the day in which the day star would arise in their hearts And they would see in the light of Christ. Let's look at just one representative passage in the Old Testament. If you could turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 33. We'll look together at verses 51 through 56. Where Moses writes, the word of the Lord. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan... Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their figured stones, and destroy all their metal images, and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance." Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. 
You see, here we have a type or a picture in the Bible which pictures the antitype or the fulfillment. The crossing of the Jordan is typical of crossing into the kingdom of God. The Canaanites are typical of those who would oppose the kingdom of God and Christ. And you see, the command to Israel is not to mix with the Canaanites. They're not to give any part of their hearts to anything that the Canaanites loved. And why? Because if they did, those things would start to stand between them and God. They would become thorns in their flesh. They would be clouds in the front of the Son of God's face. In another place, God specifically tells the Israelites not to make a covenant with the Canaanites. Cultivate the world, God says, and you will not reap, you will not reap my love, my grace, my presence. When you make a covenant with the world, that is the best evidence that you, have not prote- you are not protected by my covenant, God says. Be separate, says God, because that is the way in which I will be with you, the way in which I will guide your steps and protect you. We see it not only in types and antitypes, but God has graciously warned us by recording examples for us in the Old Testament for our instruction and profit. We have just such an example in 1 Kings chapter 22. The background may be familiar to you, but if it's not, briefly, the story is of the wicked and sinful king Ahab, who is the king of Israel and who goes off to war. Ahab had chased the prophet Elijah away, he had introduced the worship of Baal, and he had generally despised all of the things of God. The king of Judah at that time was a good king, named Jehoshaphat. There should have been little fellowship between the two kings, for the desires of their hearts were very different. But we see that Jehoshaphat goes to Ahab and says to him, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. He didn't listen to the warning of God, because God had given him a clear warning through his prophet Micaiah. And when Ahab was defeated, Jehoshaphat also suffered, being surrounded by the enemy. As a matter of fact, Jehoshaphat would have fallen that day, but for the mercy of God. Because you see, in the parallel account in 2 Chronicles, we see that the enemy had so thoroughly confused Jehoshaphat with Ahab that they went after Jehoshaphat, calling him the king of Israel. And they surrounded him to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, And the Lord helped him, and God delivered him from the enemy. Warnings and mercy. Warnings and mercy. This is the way of our God. We have another example of a gracious warning God gives to us of not loving the world in the New Testament. We can see why God wants us to forsake the world by looking to the example of one man in the New Testament, a man by the name of Demas. Now, like many people in the New Testament, Demas only appears briefly. So briefly that, in fact, if you weren't looking for him, you'd probably miss him. The Bible is like that because each and every word is important. We first meet Demas in the closing verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. In chapter 4, Paul tells the Colossians to be vigilant in prayer, to walk wisely, and to season their speech with grace. 
He then gives his final greetings, acknowledging his fellow laborers in the gospel. And in turn, Tychicus, Onesimus, and Mark are introduced. Then in verse 14 he says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. It's a very small phrase, but obviously Paul has great concern and love for these two men. We've gotten to know Luke very well over the past few months as we've studied his gospel. There's a similar passage that comes up in Philemon. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. Now, this verse tells us more. It tells us that Demas was considered a fellow laborer with Paul. He's placed in an elite company with Mark and with Luke. But the Bible reminds us that it is not sufficient to begin well. We must also end well. Because the last time that Demas is mentioned in Scripture, it is not a place of honor. Paul says of Demas in 2 Timothy, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. What words? They speak of betrayal, of rejection, of loss. Demas has forsaken the very apostle Paul, and why? Because he loved this present world. The love of the world mastered Demas. And it made it evident that the love of the Father was not in him. This thought should terrify us. It should make us consider whether we can love the world in small measures and follow our Lord. And yet this thought should also bring us to our knees in thanksgiving and in supplication. Supplication that in order that the grace of God would preserve us from such a fate and thankfulness that the Spirit of Christ has given us this very story to warn us against loving the world. There is a reason that God warns us not to cultivate the love of the world. And that reason is that our love should be set on better things. The second thing we see in this text is that God gives us His mercy in exhorting us to cultivate love for Christ rather than love for the world. We must understand that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are traveling through this world as strangers and pilgrims. God wants us to cultivate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are three ways in which we are exhorted. First, we are reminded that we are traveling as strangers and pilgrims in this world. Our citizenship, Paul tells us, is in heaven. And so this world is not to be our home. Now, that doesn't mean that at times it cannot be a comfortable and a pleasant place, but there is a difference between a place we are passing through and home. We can enjoy a hotel or a motel, depending on how dry and pleasant the conditions are inside, how hot the coffee is that we can drink, but we would never think of taking up residence there. It's not home. We long to be home, to be where we belong And you see, in just that same manner, the Christian's heart is set on Christ rather than the world. Any love, proper love that the the Christian has for the world is because of Christ. 
We flee from sin because the world is not our home and because we desire that our love would be shown for Christ. We show our love for Christ by glorifying Him. We also cultivate our love for Christ by acknowledging that we are transformed by the power of Christ. Perhaps the best passage that describes this for us is the beginning of Romans 12, where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, first Paul puts us in remembrance of all that Christ has done for us in his mercy. This is the entire ground of his encouragement to us. He encourages us and beseeches us by the mercies of God. And what does he plead with us to do? To present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. To not be conformed to the world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It is the work of God himself in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are transformed. For conversion is the work of the Holy Spirit, convincing us of sin, enlightening our minds, and renewing our wills. And why are we transformed? That we might know the good and perfect will of God. You see, daily we must not be conformed to the world, but instead we must be transformed to Christ if we are to love Christ. How could we love Christ if we refuse to be like Him? How can we love Christ if we are bound by our love of a world that hates Him? Thirdly, we cultivate our love for Christ by thrusting the world away from us by the grace of God. Now what do I mean by that? I don't mean that we should pride ourselves by saying how unlike the world we are. There are plenty of groups that do this that don't know Christ. We could think about religious groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the former Branch Davidians. There could be political groups like skinheads or the Black Panthers that pride themselves on not being like the world. But you see, the difference is none of these groups reject the world in order to move toward Christ. None of them cultivate the love of Christ. No, if we are truly to not love the world, as John means it, we are to have the love of the Father in us. And then we must thrust the world away from us with the full knowledge that it is only the grace of God that enables us to do so. Later in this same letter, John says the same thing in a slightly different manner. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. The world does not know us, John says. But why? Is it because we've worked ourselves into such a position? Is it because the world sees our merit? That's not what the scripture says. What it does say is the world does not know us because of the grace of God in our lives. Because of the love that the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called 
the children of God. It is because of the Father's love that we shall be like Him. We must always have both eyes on that prize if we are to reach the goal. Well, we've seen that to cultivate the love of Christ and to avoid the love of the world, we must travel as strangers and pilgrims. We must be transformed by the power of Christ and we must thrust the world away from us by the grace of God. The fourth and final way in which we cultivate the love of Christ is to be totally committed to God by the power of Christ. To be totally committed to God means that we are completely reliant on the power of Christ. It is necessary for us to look to our union with Christ, our covenant with Christ, in order to be totally committed. If we believe that we can get ourselves holy to God in our own strength, we're deceiving ourselves. Yet a total commitment is exactly what God requires of us. Remember, no one can serve two masters. He must hate the one and love the other. And Christ says through Paul in Romans 6, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. James puts it a little bit differently. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There is a theme here that runs throughout all of the scriptures and that is that we are to be committed to the Lord our God and by the power of Christ we are joined to Him and that requires that we forsake the world. We cannot be committed to the world and be committed to a holy God. Now what does this mean for us practically this week? I think first it reminds us that what the world offers is counterfeit and is not worthy of our love. John says that the world is passing away along with its desires and whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, Let me give you kind of a down-home example of what this should mean to our souls. Have you ever made the mistake of buying a knockoff product because it was cheaper? And you were sure it would be just as good and would last just as long, right? And what happens? It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It breaks You find out that you've wasted your money. And now you don't have enough to get the real thing. And you feel like you've wasted your money and your time. And you feel stupid for having done so. Because probably others had said to you, you know, you need to get the real thing. And you may have even argued with them. No, this is just as good. It doesn't matter where it was made. It doesn't matter that they misspelled the name on the product. I'm sure it'll work just fine. And you see, you came to regret it. On a much more important and deeper level, that is what we face in our souls. If we trade the love of the Father for the love of the world. If we seek satisfaction and worth and purpose in the world, we will find that it is fleeting. And then at the end, it will be broken and worthless. You see, what the world has to offer you is a paradox. It seems to be life, but it's really death. There is perhaps no better example 
of a good choice in this regard than Moses. Moses was offered the world's version of honor, life, and wealth. And Hebrews tells us that by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked for the reward. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age in which it was painful to reject the world. It is something that we will be persecuted for, made fun of, laughed at, for choosing the things of God rather than the things of the world. Don't choose counterfeit, broken, fake riches. Do not love the world. For he who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must look beyond appearances. Secondly, it is also helpful for us to examine ourselves. To see that the love of God abides in us and abounds in us. You see, the only difference between Demas and Paul was that Paul found the grace of God. Are we unsure tonight whether the grace of God abides in us? Then we must examine ourselves. We must go to the throne of grace. Complacency and the avoidance of prayer is the devil's delight. If you doubt your love for Christ, then seek him while he may be found, and he will grant you such love. If you are afraid that you love the world too much, look to Christ. He will fashion your heart after his own. Thirdly and finally, let us examine our own desires to see that we love what Jesus loves. As we understand to love Christ is to see what he loves. We need to see this and we need to love it as well. We need to dwell on what is good and noble, not on what is harsh and true, cruel. We need to bring every thought into captivity. We need to have the mind of Christ. For after all, the love of Christ was to do the will of Him who sent Him and to finish His work. What is your chief delight? It is truly my prayer tonight that our chief delight would be the answer to that catechism question. To enjoy God forever. Now is this simply a rote answer that we give to a catechism question? If you're not sure, then seek the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will show you the incomparable delights that are found in Him. The love that can abound in your soul. It is so much more precious than anything the world can offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that warns us that we ought not to seek the world and its things, but that we ought to seek the love of the Father, that we ought to seek it through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we go throughout the many challenges of our week to be in the world but not of it, 
to love the lost around us, but not to seek delight in the things of the world. To not shut ourselves up on an island, but not to become as those who know not Christ. Lord, this is a challenge beyond our abilities. And so we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would be with us. You would set our affections on the things of heaven. This we ask in the name of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.